Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Fall is here, finally, and that means one thing here at American Libraries and Dewey Decibel Headquarters. It's time to dig into library architecture and design. American Library's September-October issue, as always, contains our Library Design Showcase, where we look at some of the most exciting and innovative new library construction and renovation projects over the past year. In this year's issue, we also have a slew of other design features, including managing editor Tara Dinkowski's look at details of large and small construction projects. We also hear from Meridian Library District in Idaho about their tiny library. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we dive into the September-October issue even further. First, I speak with Gretchen Casarati. She's Library Director of Meridian Library District, about that tiny library of theirs. Next, Tara Dinkowski speaks with Cynthia Jordan. She's Project Manager of the Austin Public Library's new Central Library. It's a $125 million project that's featured in her story in our new issue. And finally, I speak with Rachel Shipper. She's director of the Giaconda and Joseph King Library at the Society of Four Arts in Palm Beach, Florida. The library's renovation was featured in our design showcase this year. And I speak with Rachel about the art restoration work done at the library this year. But first, here's a word from a sponsor. Your library needs to serve your community by providing spaces uniquely designed for them. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Careful planning must be done to create a right-size program for your patrons. Type A Architects supports both large and small communities. Our lead gold design for West Hampton, Massachusetts serves a town of just 6,000. To learn more, visit tapa.com libraries. Tape Architects. Enhancing communities through library design. Libraries come in all sizes, but how about 320 square feet? That's tiny. And that's precisely the name of Meridian Library District in Meridian, Idaho's new library. The tiny library, as it's called, is housed in a former shipping container and is used to provide services to the community's youngest members. I spoke with Meridian Library District Director Gretchen Casarati about the project. How did you construct this library? What led to you creating this little tiny space? Well, we had uh, attempted to pass capital funding measure twice to build a full-service, full-size branch library. A particular collaborative partnership in Meridian called The Hill with the YMCA, the City of Meridian, and elementary school. And those attempts were unsuccessful. Um, we have a very uh, fiscally conservative community with a very fast-growing um, residency, and that puts a strain on the tax base for schools, for funding schools. So as those measures didn't pass and the other partners were able to open their locations, um, we wanted to ensure that we could find some way to be contributing to the partnership. And so we were inspired by the tiny home movement and blending that idea with the portables that our school district and many across, 
uh, the country end up using um, when they have overcrowded schools, we started to play with the idea that maybe we could uh, use some of those ideas to create uh, an unusual type of a smaller library where we could fill a specific gap that the partnership really wasn't focusing on, which is in early literacy. So we started to get excited about the idea and kind of pitched it around town and, and started to put together some project proposals. And the more people that we talked to about the idea, the more excited everyone got. And we were able to pursue and receive grant funding to pay for the container itself. And um, that really kicked off uh, the whole entire project. And so within a year's time, we were able to open the doors to our tiny library that focuses on providing early literacy services to children and families at the home. Awesome. Now, let's talk about the, the, the shipping container itself. Um, what condition did it come in? What, I guess in its rawest form, what did the container like and what was the process like of, of transforming a raw shipping container into, into a library? Well, thankfully, we didn't have to do it ourselves. <laughs> we do yeah. a lot of things ourselves in libraries, but we really realized early on that we needed the help of professionals. In addition to the engineering requirements, for example, could it hold snow in the winter time, or how would it? Um, there are code issues and ADA accessibility issues and things we wanted to make sure that we were really doing properly. So we, we worked with a company um, in Idaho that um, handle selling, reselling, refurbishing, uh, working with shipping containers. We looked at used containers and explored how much it would cost to make those usable as well as new containers. And then the company does basic modifications uh, that we worked with. So they'll put a, a man, what's called a man door on it. They put in basic windows. They'll refurnish the floors so that it can be kind of a usable box. But we decided to work with architects and a construction uh, company that helped us polish it and make it customized. So the construction company um, installed the roll-up door so that we can use indoor-outdoor space and modified the windows that were standard so that we could have a, a full-size uh, glass window on one side so we'd have much nicer light inside, minimized the lighting and heating and cooling options so that we could retain as much square footage as we possibly could. Um, we also worked with dental interiors, and they were really instrumental to help us understand such a small footprint with what our options in terms of furnishing would be and, and translate something that was, you know, two-dimensional on paper to a three-dimensional experience. Now, one thing I, I really like about the tiny library um, is that it's not a traditional library space. You, you, you made a conscious effort not to fill the entire container with books. Um, can you talk a, a bit about the what can be found in the library? Like what materials are there and, and what kind of programming do you do? Sure, that is absolutely correct. We did not want to just have a box full of books. Um, we really wanted to showcase and highlight the skills of the librarians uh, and the staff that work in this space as a, such a community resource. Um, so we wanted to, we envisioned that they would be the ones facilitating experiences. The vision for this, this library branch is hybridizing children's museums with libraries, where you bring people 
for stuff, but you also bring people for experiences. Mm-hmm. So we have books there. Um, we have a books. All the books are um, on the in the collection are on wheels, so we can roll them outside. Idaho, where we live in southwestern Idaho, has beautiful weather most of the year. We're in the high desert, and so we really wanted to be able to leverage the patio out front. So all the books can be rolled out um, into the patio out front, and then we also have um, games, toys, uh, activities. Uh, a lot of different things in the space that rotate so that the families who use this branch will have new, fresh content every few months. And so those rotate on the five early literacy practices. Those themes are read, talk, sing, write, and play. And so the staff who work here really do a good job of rotating the books and all the activities. And then even the way that those are presented are based on child development um, now, you'd mentioned um, you have the ability to take the books outside and, and, and maximize the outdoor space. Uh, what other type of design elements or considerations that did you have to or did the architects have to, to use uh, in order to, to make that possible, to maximize what space you had? Well, the roll-up door was really key for that, mm-hmm. um, that the idea is that people can see from far away was open uh, and it's an and it's an invitation um, because it is just it's just so small inside <laughs> yeah. uh, and we also wanted everything to be mobile so that if it didn't work when we were actually in the space we'd have the ability to move things around and change things up so in the in the back corner we have a full-size glass um, window on the back end and that's where we wanted to put we have um, kind of like a play space so there's that's where we do story time, and uh, there's a, that's where families will go and cuddle up and read if they're there or play some of the, the games and activities. There's a rug on the floor and movable furniture, things like that. And then in nice weather, when that roll-up door is open, it's right there, so it's easy to just pull those tables out and those activities right outside the patio. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that I think is wonderful about this project is that you uh, were awarded a, um, a fellowship from the, the Future of Libraries, so it's a, from ALA, from the, the, um, from the American Library Association. Uh, now, could you t- talk a bit about this toolkit? Because I think it probably provides some valuable resources and advice for other librarians or libraries that might uh, want to pursue something similar to this. Yeah, I would be happy to. We were so honored to have been selected for that fellowship. Um, we're a big believer in piloting things, testing things, and then sharing with others, particularly in our very rural state where we have a lot of very small libraries with very small budgets. And so our hope was that we could pilot this model and then share it to make it easier for other libraries where in a small community of a few hundred or a few thousand people, you know, the likelihood of them passing funding measures to build libraries is even smaller than maybe what we've experienced here and reduce some of their obstacles to um, to increasing library service points. So, um, so we had already been receiving a lot of inquiries from people as we were kind of workshopping the idea and, and designing and going through the process itself of the project. And so the toolkit allowed us to have something concrete that we can just share with others so that they can see the whole process and then be able to 
find ways that they that anyone would need to customize our, what we learn from it to make it work in their own community. Um, and there's lots of ways that we thought that others could do things even less expensively. Um, for example, we ended up buying some books for the collection, but we also did a book drive within the community. And so you, a library could just do a book drive and use books that the community gives. Um, so the toolkit is meant to be uh, something that another community who might be interested in doing this, working with a parks and rec department or um, a school, um, a place where you have a limited footprint for your public library, um, working with other service providers in the community that it could hopefully <laughs> um, make it easier for others to replicate. And so we're really excited about it. We already heard from another library in the state of Idaho that has taken the toolkit and is starting to talk to their city elected officials about uh, piloting something in their community. So that's very exciting. You're ready to begin your library building project, but how do you make sure it will meet the needs of your community? Our experienced staff at TAPE Architects have developed a tried and true community engagement process for library building projects. Library Design Director Jeff Hoover has presented his approach at places like the World Library and Information Congress and Harvard School of Design. Go to tape.com slash Dewey to learn how to effectively get input from your community. TAPE Architects, creating libraries that engage. Everything is bigger in Texas, as they say, including the libraries. And Austin Public Library's new Central Library is no exception. American Library's managing editor, Tara Dankowski, looked at the $125 million project in How to Build a Library, her story in American Library's latest issue. We join Tara now as she talks with Cynthia Jordan, the project manager on the Central Library construction, about the challenges and rewards of such a large building project. And in planning the Central Library, I know Austin Public Library used a lot of community feedback uh, during the design process, and users were particularly vocal about uh, the new building being as green as possible. Uh, can you speak to some of the unique building features of the Central Library, as well as its LEED certification? Oh, yeah. We are just so excited um, the fact that we did reach LEED Platinum. Um, we are the only LEED Platinum library that I that we've been informed exists, so we're just really, really excited about that. Um, some of the features that we were able to incorporate into our building, um, what we constructed, of course, was our green roof, which is a really beautiful place up on our sixth floor, where we have a six-story building. And um, it's got beautiful views of downtown, so everybody just loves to get up on the roof garden and enjoy that space. Um, we also have, we're able to repurpose an adjoining piece of infrastructure that was no longer needed by our neighbor of Austin Energy. And that was converted into a 350,000 gallon cistern. So every bit of rainwater is collected off the roof and every bit of condensate from our six stories of air conditioned building is collected in this cistern and it is all reused to flush our urinals and our toilets and for all the 
irrigation for the landscaping on the roof garden and the landscaping around the building. So that's one of our one of the things I'm most proud about um, that you get to repurpose a piece of infrastructure that was just abandoned, and it um, it's sort of cool. This is huge. <laughs> um, we used a lot of renewable materials in our building, um, from our mesquite flooring um, to the native stone that's really very close by. Um, we were once a brownfield site because the site that the library is on now was part of Austin Energy's substation. And Austin Energy took it upon themselves um, after council directed it to um, to reduce the substation and to relocate the facilities that were on this piece of property to their facility to the north. And then we were able to have um, all of the contaminated soil from previous uh, usages on the site um, be um, remediated. So we got a brownfield designation. Um, and then like I said earlier, excuse me, said earlier is that we've got um, our photovoltaics on our roof our PV um, produces about 13% of all of the electricity that we need for the building. Um, we have renewable electrical, you know, elevators. The, electric, the electrical elevators actually produce energy as they, as the counterweights go down when you, when the elevators go up. So we've got some really unique things that we were able to incorporate in our building. That and our total, oh, excuse me, our total lead. We um, received 82 points um, out of 110, so we're real proud of our total lead points. That's incredible. <laughs> it's all of those features that, taken together. It just it just sounds so incredible. Um, when I was when I was. Uh, Talking to uh, former facilities process manager John Gillum about um, obstacles Austin Public Library overcame to get the central library built, um, he had mentioned that workers found an underground river uh, when they began to dig at the construction site. And I was just kind of wondering, how did the architects get around that? And were there any other major surprises during construction? And what, what types of workarounds um, maybe were used to kind of make a project of this magnitude possible? Well, and John is right. We did find a lot of groundwater, um, and it was initially it was identified on a neighboring site that was also under construction, just one that was diagonal across the street. Um, and when we were told um, in our monthly meetings that we had for anybody working in this area or designing in this area that they had hit a lot of groundwater, we again looked into it and. From that and from other analysis that we had um, as part of our geotechnical evaluation um, from our geotechnical engineer, and just knowing that we were directly across the street from our Lady Bird Lake, it was decided that we needed to build our foundation a little different than we normally would do in Central Texas. Normally in Central Texas, on a building this size, you would have drill shafts or piers, some people call them and they would go down as deep as they needed to be to get into really solid um, materials, whether it's into bedrock or other types of soils that would be able to hold up a building of our weight. Uh, well, we had to eliminate that. And another reason we had to eliminate it um, that John may or may not mentioned earlier is that our building, 75 feet below the bottom of our building, the city had just installed a wastewater tunnel 
carry a lot of wastewater from the north down to uh, a wastewater chain. So in doing that as well, we realized that we couldn't install drilled shafts. So we created what we call, funnily called um, our own bathtub. Our foundation floor, if you call it, is five and a half feet thick. And our sides of our walls, so the sides of what we call our bathtub, are just not as that thick, but they are double wide with a whole lot of steel in it. And basically, the groundwater from Lady Bird Lake is unable to come up from the bottom. And then the water that's coming through the site and that was coming through our neighboring site also is redirected around. And we really have a dry, dry um, parking garage. Um, but it was finding out what's happening on the neighboring site. And then during construction, like John had mentioned to you, is like the contractor really had to do a lot of um, what we call deep well dewatering, where they would put wells all the way around the perimeter of the hole, and then they pump that water out and they collect it and then it is um, treated and then able to be released. But we, yeah, you just have to do a lot of um, extra extra work maybe, but a lot of um, additional uh, attention to details when you've got a lot of groundwater that you're dealing with. The finished product, uh, it's a beautiful building. It's won many awards and distinctions. Uh, what has been the community's reaction to the new Central Library? Um, you mentioned some of the the green features. Um, what would you say are some of the favorite features or sections of the library that people like to flock to? Well, yeah, we have, we're so excited. Um, I have not heard one negative thing um, about the building. I mean, you're always going to have certain people that didn't believe that the city needed a new library or that libraries don't need to exist anymore. but. Uh, this place is, is full all the time, and their favorite places besides the reading garden, which uh, the roof garden, um, is um, our reading room. We have a beautiful, quiet reading room um, that faces downtown, and it's really always busy. And they remind you, if you get a little noisy, know that this is quiet, and that's been self-imposed. It's sort of funny how, because um, there's no signs that say have to be quiet, but it's just the ambiance of the room the way the furniture's laid out with tables and lights like the old historic um, libraries of the past, but yet real soft, cushy, you know, chairs as well. Um, our children and teen areas are full as well. And um, the kid, I mean, you can just go by, visit now, like you said, the library hasn't been open just almost two years and that children's area has been well loved. It um, is just so full of um, excitement and joy um, for the kids. And um, the teens love their area as well because this area is strictly set aside um, for youngsters 13 to 18 years old. And while you know adults can come in and walk around, they're not allowed to stay. And so the kids, you know, really feel comfortable being in their own space. And um, it's really excited to see how happy they are in there and um, the functions and things, that, the activities that the teen librarian staff, you know, have for the teens has really been fun for them. And then our special event center as our large um, event room down on the first floor that faces um, Cesar Savez and Shoal Creek. Um, it is always booked for events, whether it's a library event or a, an event that somebody has rented the facility for. Um, it is uh, greatly used and um, people just love 
you know, the ambiance of the room and the fact that it's downtown and it's accessible. So we've, we've been able to really create some really great spaces that the public has really embraced. We're thankful for that. Your library needs to serve your community by providing spaces uniquely designed for them. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Careful planning must be done to create a right-size program for your patrons. Tape Architects caters to both large and small communities. Our designs for cities and counties with over a quarter million people provide spaces that cater to the diverse populations. To learn more, visit tape.com libraries. Tape Architects. Designing spaces that inspire. The Giaconda and Joseph King Library at the Society of the Four Arts in Palm Beach, Florida is an elegant Mediterranean Revival style facility designed by architect Maurice Fatio and built in 1938. Unlike some 80 year old buildings, it needed a facelift to bring it into the modern era and to fix some deteriorating cosmetic elements as well. In this case, cypress woodwork inside and four ornate murals on the building's exterior. I spoke with Library Director Rachel Shipper about how they restored the building's artwork and the renovation's reception in Palm Beach. Uh, if any of our listeners haven't seen the, the, the King Library, the Giaconda and Joseph King Library, um, from the Society of War Arts, I recommend going to AmericanLibrariesMagazine.org and checking out our library design showcase because we featured uh, the library and the project in the showcase. Um, and if you can see the library, it's this Mediterranean revival style. And while looking at it and learning about this project, it got me thinking about other library projects that we come across at the magazine. And a lot of them, you'll if it's an older building, it often uh, modern elements will be added to it uh, very drastically. And I was wondering, was that the case with your library? How did you did you did you try to adhere very closely to Maurice Fadio's original design? And what if there were any modern elements? What what uh, type of elements were those? Well, absolutely, we were adhering historically to this landmark building, and a lot of research went into the design process for the architect to strictly adhere to those original features. And coupled with the town of Palm Beach, the town is dedicated to preserving its history and structures. There was a process by which the town council meetings were attended plans were approved, and questions answered during the planning process and continuing right through until the project was completed. Everything is vetted, number of parking spaces, permitting, undergrounding of utilities, community traffic impacts, along with the structure itself and fitting the construction and restoration into the same footprint of the original building and two additions to make it preserved in a historic manner. Now, Maurice Fascio had a vision that was very balanced and symmetrical. And some of that vision included even the hanging lamps at the entrance. And some of those hanging lamps needed to be refabricated with the original design replicated. And these were historic elements that had to be reinstated. But the library also needed an interior space that was flexible for class use, 
book group presentations and team instruction, and bringing it honestly into the 21st century. So our second floor area, which originally consisted of a raised portion of the floor for a stage, needed to be on one level with upgraded sound and computer projection. The beautiful beams that were originally exposed in 1938 had since been covered with fairly ugly ceiling tile when air conditioning ducts were installed. And that was feedback from all of our stakeholders that said that the beams should be re-exposed. They really missed those beams. And interspersed in our beams were also uh, lighting concerns. And we had to update the lighting in that area. And we wanted dimmer switches. So we considered what lighting would look best with those beams, those reinforced beams. And it was, we, we had chosen Ralph Lauren chandeliers to be installed, which is a very modern element along with those original beams. But they're simple and they're stunning and we can dim them during events and presentations and they're absolutely the best lighting that we could possibly imagine. Great. Um, now, the outside of the building, and the inside, um, but the outside by the front entrance, you have these wonderful four murals. And, um, and inside, there's um, some cypress woodwork um, uh, throughout the building. And I was wondering what considerations were, were, were made for, for those particular uh, uh, elements that, that, that might have to be uh, uh, conserved or, or restored uh, uh, gingerly. What's, um, how is that aspect of the renovation handled? Well, the building has an arched entrance, and those original murals are by Albert Herder from 1939. And the murals were recreated by a local artist, Zenon Tuxek, during a restoration that spanned 20 months. So wow. the original mural but yeah, it took for it took a long, long time to do that. A meticulous long time. And the original murals were oil on linen. The four murals are located on the outside of the entrance to the library, as you had said. And they've almost disappeared due to the natural materials being out in the elements of South Florida, that salt water and hot, balmy air. The murals needed to be recreated off-site in the artist's studio with modern materials that could withstand the elements for many years to come. And so it was decided that acrylics on plastics were used after the original murals had been gridded, paint samples taken, and measurements done. Photographs from the original murals were also utilized by the artist. And he had to create those four arts, one panel for drama, one for music, one for art, and one for literature. And then incorporate some de design details to unite the murals. Since the entrance door was originally located in the center of the building, but it had been moved many years before to the left side of the library, the restoration reincorporated that center door. And that resulted in some design challenges for the artist and those murals. But he did a brilliant job with them. The That's King cool. Library, yeah, it's a beautiful photo um, uh, in ALA, and we appreciate uh, every day when we approach the entrance 
to the library seeing those murals. They're just lovely. The, the King Library was product of 1930s construction in Florida. And in, 19, in the 1930s, old growth cypress paneling and shelving uh, covered each wall and the coffered ceiling of the first floor. And this was the type of wood that was generally used in many residences here on Palm Beach. Since old growth cypress is no longer cut down in Florida and elsewhere, it was determined that we had to save the cypress of the original building. It needed to be carefully removed, nails and imperfections attended to, and then remilled and reinstalled in the restored building. So it was a real uh, recycle process of that cypress. As you might imagine, this is a tedious and a lengthy process, but well worth preserving that natural charm and warmth of that wood in the library. Part of reassuring the community that the library would be refreshed in look, but retain its characteristic features. The original wood was treated with a lime white wash in the 1930s, and our current shelving has a more book-friendly white wash of stains rather than that lime. And it slightly lightens the wood, but it allows the cypress color to show through. Window framing and some of our doors were wood and needed to be um, the, the same visual effect, but some of them are fire doors, and they needed to look like wood but comply with current code. So another artist was called in, and she painted the fire doors to mirror the look of cypress. And it's fascinating to see people look at these wood doors and think that they are truly wood. You can't tell the difference. They're just done perfectly. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Many thanks to Gretchen, Cynthia, and Rachel for speaking with us today. Join us next month for Dewey Decibel's very special annual Halloween episode. That's right, everybody. What library mysteries will we uncover this year? Stay tuned to find out. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter. We can reach me directly at DeweyDecibel at ALA.org. Don't hesitate, hesitate at all. Send us your thoughts, show ideas, criticisms, praise, anything and everything. We want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thank you.